Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing a little bit of my own U.S. politics and policy angle on these different issues when appropriate. This week, I want to talk about the upcoming Turkish general elections on May 14th. So just a little background. This general election will consist of parliamentary elections, which will determine the 600 seats that are in the Turkish parliament, as well as the presidential elections. For this episode, I'll probably focus most of my attention on the presidential election because it's kind of a really big deal. And it's between the incumbent, Recep Erdogan, who has been the leader of Turkey for the last 20 years, first as prime minister, then as president since 2014. And the opposition candidate, and when I say opposition candidate, it is a number of different political parties that have come together to support Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu. And so I'm excited today to welcome Urash Ulko. He is the head of our Emerging Markets Europe research here at the Institute of International Finance. He's also Turkish. So I think that it'll be great to hear from him. Urash, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So let me just start with some basics about the key actors and the parties involved in this election. Let's start with Erdogan, who's kind of, I think, well-known to people around the world. He's the incumbent. What do we need to know about him? What has his leadership of Turkey for the last 20 years been like? Let me start by giving you a bit of uh, historical background about President Erdogan. Erdogan is 69 years old, and he has been in charge of policy making in Turkey since 2003. After serving as prime minister from 2003 to 2014, Erdogan was elected as the president of Turkey in 2014 for his first term in office as president. And if President Erdogan gets re-elected in the upcoming elections, it will be his third term in office as president. And in regards uh, to your question as to how his presidency has been like, when Erdogan was serving as prime minister, he was a reformist who expanded rights and freedoms in Turkey, especially for his conservative Muslim supporters. But later he reversed course, especially after the failed coup uh, attempt in 2016. He started cracking down on dissent, controlling the, the media heavily, and passing measures that basically eroded democracy in Turkey. In 2017, Erdogan moved forward to switch Turkey to executive presidency and took his proposal to to change the constitution to a referendum. Turkish voters in the referendum narrowly approved the switch to executive presidential system. And with this change, the post of prime minister was abolished and a significant amount of power was given to the executive president. And in June 2018, Erdogan won the presidential elections with 52% of the vote becoming Turkey's first president with executive powers, while his party's alliance with the Nationalist Party, MHP, secured a majority in uh, parliament. So going back to your question, Clay, Erdogan's presidency since 2018 has been very volatile for the Turkish economy and Turkish assets. Turkish voters have suffered from rounds of economic turmoil and lira depreciation since 2018 and high inflation. The presidential and parliamentary elections set for May 14 appear to be Erdogan's perhaps most challenging elections because 
they will be held in very poor economic conditions for the majority of the society. And also elections will be held just three months after a devastating earthquake that killed tens of thousands in the southeast of Turkey. And voters in that part of Turkey were not happy about the Erdogan administration's handling rescue efforts right after the earthquake. And some people in that region think post-earthquake relief measures have been quite disappointing. And also there is a belief that some building permits should not have been issued by the AK Party municipalities and some buildings collapsed and you know thousands of people got killed because of uh, corruption-linked uh, building permits issued by Erdogan's AK Party municipalities. Let, let me stop here. Okay, now that's a great, that's great. And so you can see, obviously, there can be some discomfort with Erdogan. But he's obviously, he's been a very successful politician. Forget the being a successful leader, but a successful politician. But all right, in the past, at least as an outsider, not, a, not somebody who knows the country as well as you do, it always seemed to me that it was hard for the opposition to, it was easy to splinter the opposition into various factions. And even though there'd be a common hatred or a common enmity towards Erdogan, they couldn't rally around any particular candidate or any particular platform. So now they've kind of tried to do that, at least with an individual, maybe not with the platform. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the opposition and about the opposition candidate, whose name I pronounced earlier, but I'm going to let you pronounce it for real this time. Kılıçdaroğlu. So Kılıçdaroğlu is uh, the leader of the Republican People's Party, or CHP, and presidential candidate of a broad opposition alliance of six political parties. Kılıçdaroğlu is older than Erdogan. Kılıçdaroğlu is 74 years old. And before he became a member of the parliament for CHP in 2002, he was a bureaucrat in the 1990s. He worked in the finance ministry for many years, and then he, later he became uh, the head of Turkey's social security institution. And there are two other presidential candidates, Ince and Oğan, but most political analysts and pollsters predict that the presidential race will boil down to Erdogan versus Kılıçdaroğlu. As I said, Kılıçdaroğlu is the presidential candidate of six political parties in the so-called the Table of Six or Nations Alliance, and which includes basically parties from the left, center, and right wings of Turkish politics. And generally speaking, six political parties in the opposition alliance usually disagree on many issues, but they have found common ground on one thing, which is their desire to replace Erdogan as president. And Kılıçdaroğlu also has the backing of the Kurdish HDP, as well as the popular mayors of Istanbul and Ankara, who have appeared at uh, Kılıçdaroğlu's election campaign rallies. Excellent. All right. So good framing. Again, just quick background. The election takes place on May 14th. If no candidate gets over 50% of the vote, most likely... Erdogan or Kilar Storolo, then there will be a runoff election on May 28th. First, I guess, what are the poll numbers looking like? And secondly, and maybe just as importantly, and I'm going to put this crudely, Erdogan has been known for using shenanigans when things are tight in an election to basically put himself or his party over the top. Would this happen again, or would you think if Erdogan lost, and it's even close, that he would walk away and say, I've lost, good luck to the new president? Um, okay, let me begin with the, the polls. 
I mean, there's uh, clearly some uncertainty around the poll numbers, but uh, still the, the latest poll numbers suggest it will be a very tight race between Erdogan and Kılıçdaroğlu. Even so, the political analysts or election experts assign 56% chance for Kılıçdaroğlu's winning presidential elections after the second round on May 28th, but with a n- narrow margin. Political experts believe that if Kılıçdaroğlu wins with a wide margin, say more than two percentage points, then Erdogan will hand over the power smoothly to Kılıçdaroğlu. In my opinion, regardless of the margin of victory for Kılıçdaroğlu, if Erdogan loses, he will likely ask for recount of votes or take the election results to the court. But I don't expect Erdogan to look for an excuse to repeat the elections. I think he should have learned the lesson after he repeated the municipal elections in 2019 after his candidate lost the elections in Istanbul with a very narrow margin of only 10,000 votes or so. And after the repeated elections in Istanbul in 2019, Erdogan's candidate lost by a wide margin of around nearly 1 million votes. So basically, the 2019 experience showed that Erdogan's supporters don't approve of him coming up with some shenanigans to get around the, the ruling. So my baseline scenario is that Erdogan will transfer the power to Kılıçdaroğlu after the official election result will be published on the official Gazette, which might, however, take a couple of weeks after May 28th if Erdogan asks for recount of votes or takes the election result to the court. Okay. I think one of the big issues you mentioned, obviously, was the that horrific earthquake and all the horrible damage that was done largely to the lives of many, many people who lost their lives. But probably another big issue is the economy itself. Now, Erdogan and his team have led what uh, economists would call heterodox economic policies. Mm-hmm. How about I just say economic policies that almost nobody else would follow? This has, at least it seems like it's created problems for Turkey's economy. And maybe you can kind of just give us a sense on what's actually happening with the economy and how this could potentially play into the elections. And as you're probably aware, I'm going to follow this up with, all right, so if there is a change, what would happen next? But let's first just kind of give up what's happening now. Um, Okay, so uh, just a little background, how Turkey came to that this point, or Turkish economy. Like all politicians, uh, Erdogan's priority has always been output growth and job creation. And to achieve this objective, he consistently increased his utilization of credit channel, especially after uh, 2017, when Turkey introduced a treasury-guaranteed bank lending scheme to encourage banks to provide somewhat cheap loans to the corporate sector. At the same time, Erdogan has intensified political pressure on the central bank to ease financial conditions at the risk of generating inflationary pressures. This sort of bank lending driven growth model has widened Turkey's external and internal imbalances and scared foreign investors away from Turkey. Growing concerns about central bank independence, unorthodox policies, and rising macro vulnerabilities led investors to significantly reduce their exposure uh, to Turkey. While foreign capital inflows reversed, Turkey's current account deficit has remained sizable, 
because of continued robust growth in imports funded by you know, strong bank lending, which also has contributed to the inflation problem. I think a key challenge for the next government in Turkey will be to regain investors' confidence, both domestically and internationally, so that Turkey can begin attracting sufficiently large foreign capital to finance its current account deficit and output growth without adding more inflationary pressures or depreciation pressures on the lira. Okay, this may be a little controversial, so I'll try it. Is Investors have been shaky about Turkey because of the kind of the policies that have been followed. And so there is this kind of theory out there that investors, if the opposition wins, they will come in with much more orthodox policies. This could attract more confidence in Turkey about what they're trying to do. And so therefore, investors could come back. So the controversial part of my question is, you mentioned earlier that the opposition is made up of six parties, some with pretty significant ideological differences. How does a, I think the words you used were former bureaucrat, um, opposition leader, bring these parties together to actually lead policies that provide the confidence that I think investors are looking for, given that he's going to have to bring various ideologies together under one roof? I think they have reached an agreement, uh, the opposition parties, the leaders of six opposition parties. So they have a plan how they will tackle some of the, the problems Turkish economy has been facing. And I'm pretty confident that uh, if Kılıçdaroğlu wins, there will definitely be a major change towards orthodoxy with a perhaps meaningfully tighter policy stance for sure. And I think investors should expect to see that Kılıçdaroğlu's economic management team will gradually normalize policies, which would essentially lead to substantially higher cost of lira funding from the central bank. But even so, such normalization of policies in Turkey and thus, you know, higher interest rates will help narrow Turkey's risk premium. Thanks, Urush. That was really helpful. Obviously, I think that I should ask you, of course, the question of, all right, so if Erdogan does win, is he likely to make much change? All right. So there's the argument that things aren't exactly working out very well, but of course, he's, he's staked his politics on this. And so to get through this election, he needed to just double down. But now that he's win, or he wins, could he decide, you know what, this isn't really working. I need to make some significant changes myself to try to bring back Turkey, both from an investment traction standpoint and also to lower inflation and continue economic growth. So what do you see if Erdogan wins? I mean, if Erdogan wins, I don't expect to see major changes in the current unorthodox policy mix. We will see a new finance minister in Erdogan's next economic management team. But beyond that, I would not expect Erdogan to approve a major U-turn for the monetary policy. And therefore, many of investors' concerns about central bank independence and unorthodox and very complicated policy setup will continue to put depreciation pressures on the data. Excellent. Okay. So one last question, I think, is foreign policy. So Erdogan has been a leader. I think he took over, as you said, in 2003. I think many of those in the United States always thought the U.S. and Turkey just had a 
not, you know, not a special relationship like the United States and the United Kingdom, but a fairly significant partnership over many years. And that has deteriorated over the last few years. We saw that at the end of the Obama administration as part of the Trump administration and now as part of the Biden administration. And I think a lot of that has been led by Erdogan's policy and partially policy probably to prove his independence. And part of that we're seeing right now is more openness towards Russia than we see from not just the United States, but Europe and frankly, all of NATO outside of Turkey and maybe to a lesser extent, Hungary. If the opposition wins, do you see that changing so that might actually be a better U.S.-Turkey relationship going forward? Or do you see the opposition saying, this isn't what's most important to us. We want to focus on the economy and we're not, we're, we won't worry about this as much. Yes, I think the uh, Turkey's relationship with the U.S., the West in general, will improve if Kılıçdaroğlu wins. And you know, a Kılıçdaroğlu victory will definitely lead to changes in Turkey's foreign policy. I think Turkey will swiftly approve Sweden's NATO membership while gradually replacing Russia with the West as a major economic and military partner. I think a Kılıçdaroğlu administration will better comply with the Western sanctions on Russia, but still some elements of Turkey's foreign policy may not be fundamentally different, such as the US-Turkey tension on Syrian Kurds, for instance. I think Ankara's frustration with uh, uh, U.S. Uh, support for Syrian Kurds is not likely to disappear uh, with a Kılıçdaroğlu victory. Well, thank you very much, Juraj. This has been an enlightening conversation. And we look forward to seeing what happens in Turkey. The next few weeks is going to be both probably exciting and a little bit nerve-wracking. But thank you again for enlightening our audience. Thank you. It was great to be here. So now it's time for my three, two, one. These are my three main takeaways from my conversation with Urush. Two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports fact of the week. So my three main takeaways are, first, this presidential election in Turkey is a big one and very important, and it's supposed to be quite close. It is likely that we will see a runoff election. So May 14th is probably not likely to decide everything, but we'll have to see how well that happens over the next few weeks. Next, Turkey does face a plethora of economic problems, high inflation, a weak lira, large current account deficit. So the path to normalizing the economy is going to be difficult no matter who wins this election. Though I think as Urush mentioned, it is most likely that if the opposition party wins, then foreign investors will be more confident. And third, the Kalistarolu victory would also likely lead to some changes in Turkey's foreign policy. Those ter- changes, I think, would be welcome in the United States, but that doesn't mean that Turkey is just going to roll over to whatever whim or wish the United States has. And I think that that's both appropriate for a country as strong and important as Turkey, but also an interesting development after 20 years of Erdogan's leadership. So the two things that I'm looking forward to, well, the first is the election itself. Just looking forward to seeing what happens and whether or not, if it is a close election and the opposition wins, will Erdogan actually give up power? And second, I'm looking forward to seeing how things develop, whoever wins, between the United States and Turkey, particularly when thinking about what's going on in Russia 
and their invasion of Ukraine. And now let me talk about my one sports fact of the week. It's not about probably the biggest stories in sports, which are the playoffs, the running of the Kentucky Derby this weekend, or Formula One racing returning to the United States through the streets of Miami. Instead, I wanted to focus on probably an event none of you have ever heard of, which is called the International Crown. It's a team competition for women's professional golfers. And when I say team, I mean based on your country, kind of like the Olympics. In golf, you often hear that the players love doing team competitions every now and then for their country, the biggest events being the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup for the men and the Solheim Cup for the women. So the International Crown was started in 2014 and was supposed to be every two years, though the last one was played in 2018 due to COVID. So why is it that I find this fascinating? Well, the first thing is there's no set lineup in the number of countries. Each country has to have four golfers and their combined ranking, and of course, golfers play on their own, so they're not playing for any team. They play by themselves, must place them in the top eight in the world. So what does this mean? It means that teams that have been previously very good, for instance, Spain, which won this thing in 2014, don't even qualify this year. Or that individual players who are amazing, such as Lydia Ko of New Zealand, probably the first or second ranked player in the world, aren't able to play because their team doesn't, they don't have four players with a good enough combination. Now, the top, there's only four players who have actually played in all four of the events that have been held so far. One from the United States, one from Australia, and two from Thailand. The top two teams are the United States and South Korea. However, in just the first day of their matches, a team from Australia beat Korea, and the team from China tied the United States. I'm a big fan of women's professional golf, and these ladies can really play. I think this is a great way for people from a lot of different countries to see their best athletes really compete. And so that's why I'm a fan of the International Crown, and I'm looking forward to the results over the weekend. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com, and all our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.